You are now listening to Grinding True Crimes with your hosts, Maddie Matt, Todd Fox, and Gabby Gab. Hello? Todd Fox. And the other host of the show, Gabby Gabby. And we are here live, kicking it in, to give you guys the final finale of the Golden State Killer. This part, the original Night Stop. But before we get into the story, let's break down where y'all can find us. Look us up on Facebook, Instagram, iHeartRadio, iTunes. Listen and look us up under Grinding True Crime Podcast. And there you can find our previous recording and also the continuation of the Golden State Killer. So if you missed any episodes in the past, there's your opportunity to catch up. Because right now, we're going to do the finale of this crazy maniac of the Golden State Killer. And uh, this one right here, is going to be the original Night Stalker. Like we've done in the past, viewer discretion is advised because my man Top Fox get into details and some stuff shouldn't be heard by little kids. If parents you're okay with that, at least you've been warned. So without any more further interruptions, my introduction's done. Top Fox, take it away, the Night Stalker. All right. Thank you for the intro, and <clears throat> thanks you you guys for coming on again this week. We had some audio problems, but this week is going to be different. So with that being said, <clears throat> so when we last left off, the East Area Rapists had finally been stopped in some sort of way by a couple who the husband was 245 pounds. He subdued the, uh, the East Area Rapist, but didn't hold him for police, ran away, and the East Area Rapist got away. <clears throat> well... Yeah, exactly. Um, while making a trip to the local hardware store also, the East Area Rapist tried to, for some reason, not pay for um, dog repellent and a hammer and was arrested by his own police department and uh, subsequently fired. And, you know, he was put on probation, didn't have to face any kind of criminal charges. He worked a plea deal. Um, <clears throat> this would hurt him uh, with his ego big time. And it would effectively give get him to change his mo, and and uh, go into depths he's never gone into before. Um, we okay. also know. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and then the, and then um, if you remember last time, guys, um, he had four straight attacks with where he just couldn't get it up. So. Oh yeah. Yeah, he needs to turn up the heat, and he does. Unfortunately. <clears throat> so. Yeah, and here we go. So the following uh, takes place October 1st, 1979, as we close out the 79 era in Goleta, 
California, just above Santa Barbara, California. It's a small town. Uh, at 2.30 a.m., a couple awoke uh, to a man shaking the bed and kicking it violently. And he said, if you don't, if, if you guys don't, um, if you don't do what I say, you MFers, I'm going to kill you. He told a couple to get on their stomachs and all he wanted was money. He tied them up, same as the East Area Rapist did with the diamond-shaped knots and the female tying the male up. The rapist tied her up and then, you know, he tied up the male even tighter. So he's hasn't changed the ammo quite yet, but he's doing the same things. And all is going to plan and starting to sound like another East Area Rapist signature case. However, he did not have a mask on. He kept saying he wanted money and no one would get hurt. He took the woman to the front room and stripped her naked. He then came into the kitchen and started rummaging. Differences in this case is he repeatedly kept saying to himself out loud, I'm going to kill them, I'm going to kill them, I'm going to do it, I'm going to finish them. So, yeah, he was pumping himself up. So, now as he went to go check on the husband, the female decided to make a break for it. Somehow she got loose, she managed to get and to hop to her feet, to the door, still blindfolded, she got out the door and began to scream. Um, <clears throat> the neighbors outside, she uh, kind of heard her in the other houses, but as she ran outside, she actually ran into the side of her neighbor's house because she didn't know where she was going. That woke up the retired FBI agent that lived next door. Um, hey. Yeah. As, as what, a... What neighbor to have? Right? <laughs> So upon hearing the girl scream, he decided to make a run for it um, out, you know, the, the husband out the back door. He thought his wife was getting murdered. As he ran outside to the to the back, the East Area Rapist was trying to get the wife back inside, but she was dragging her inside. And then he was out back. So while he got her inside, he tried to get to the husband, which, who got outside the sliding glass door in the backyard and was hiding in some bushes. The East Area Rapist couldn't find him, and then he heard an FBI agent, which was the next-door neighbor, come downstairs and uh, come outside with his gun and flashlight. As he was entering the home, the rapist decided to go out through the front side gate, and he did, got on a bike, and, uh, you know, took off. And the FBI agent called the sheriff's department. Huh? Oh, go ahead. Like, Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> so, so the woman was outside, or she was inside, screaming. The East Area Rapist took off, and then the FBI agent came out, went to his car, got in the car, took off, chased him down the street, and then he jumped into um, another person's yard off the bike. And the officer, uh, FBI agent, decided not to. Another officer came. They decided not to follow him to go back to the victims. They went back to the victims. And to check on the husband, the husband was scared, frightened, but the wife was kind of beaten up a little bit and had a concussion because she ran into the side of dude's house. Um, but other than that, they weren't. She wasn't sexually assaulted, and fortunately, yeah, fortunately, the man wasn't hurt as well. But the, uh, you know, Shelby heard of this one and Crompton, and they said that this was, it, it's it fit the mo, but. Uh, they didn't want to believe it was the East Area Rapist. He had been quiet for five months up north. Wow. Mm-hmm. And they figured, okay, you know, he's 
even with a, they found a diamond notch, you know, that, that he used, and they found the size nine shoes. They didn't want to tie it together. They they just said no, it's not the wow. same. Yeah, they said it was either, a, a, right? They said it was a copycat. So. They, a copycat happens to have the same size shoe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, in this one, this is another case where. Um, it was another case where he lost control of the situation. And this yep. would this would prove to be the changing point in the series. So the police Ooh. the police in Goleta in Santa Barbara County, which it fell under, were figuring this is a random attack and maybe they have another, you know, pervert out there and they're gonna have to watch this dude. Um the Ice the Visalia yeah. police uh, also said that this could be their guy and they were always ignored always ignored so what do you think happens before the end of the year I think because this is an, another failed attempt he goes in and just kills the next victim he's not even going to waste any time he says you know what I'm not even going to let this happen I'm just going to go in tie him up and kill him what do you think, Gabby? I think maybe around the same lines of that, but I feel, I don't think he's just going to straight up murder them, but he might kill the husband but keep her alive in order to get what he wants. Okay. Well, let's find out who's right in here, and because uh, you guys are uh-huh. you guys are both <laughs> almost on here. So, right. December 9th, 1979, it had been five months since the last East Area Rapist attack up north. The task force had been disbanded. Um, the police weren't flying helicopters over people's houses anymore. They felt that maybe the dude got arrested or that, um, you know, he just left the area. Um, or he died even. You know, cops were hoping for the best case scenario. <clears throat> but unfortunately, in Goleta again, in these small apartments, you know, they're apartment condos type places, a couple named... Um, a married uh, a couple a married couple sorry dr offerman and his uh female companion dr manning were fast asleep in their nice condo home the condo next door was empty that's where the original night stalker would be creeping till they went to sleep and he crawled th- from the window of the next door to the sliding glass bathroom door window now, it's believed based on the evidence that the intruder was trying the same tactics on Dr. Offerman, who was tied up but freed himself. And it appears the way they found Dr. Offerman that he had charged the attacker, the attacker tied up. He was shot in the chest and he fell to the ground in a kneeling position. The intruder uh, then shot the doctor three times in the back, then went over to Manning and shot her in the head. Um, the shots woke up the next door neighbor who saw a car leaving the area with no lights on at 3 a.m. Police would arrive to find the bodies. As they canvassed the area, they, they found knives, rope, and knots in four different locations in the subdivision. The police also found ransacking through the house. <clears throat> so in January of 1980, Detective Richard Shelby caught wind of this incident as well. His, bar, his boss, Sergeant Jake Bevins, discussed the possibility that it was the East Area Rapist. But Bevins said no to Shelby as Shelby showed him the similarities. 
Why do you think Bevins disagreed? Because this time he actually killed the victim, and there was no sexual assault. Okay, that's a good reason. What do you think, Evan? Um, I don't know. This is. <laughs> I'm gonna. I guess yeah. Maybe because there's certain things that are not alike. If they, I don't. It's so freaking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's pretty frustrating, but yeah. I mean, he didn't rape, and I guess the way he killed them. The East Area Rapist hadn't really killed people, except he attempted to only running away when he was trying to shoot the cop. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing he didn't steal anything, and because he's in a car this time. Yeah, see, all that makes sense. He has both a right on it, with the exception that Bevins is a little stupid on this one, if, <clears throat> because he says... In his own words, the East Area Rapist has never lost control and always has had the upper hand. However, you know as well as I know tell, me telling the story, this case, the case before it, and the two prior to him leaving the East Area, he lost control. So he, he's been losing control. So Be Bevan said because he, he's, he's never lost control, that possibly can't be him. Wow. Yep. So... Shelby was pissed, but called down to Santa Barbara, and he requested a, um, that if there was any similar incidents to this one at all, break-ins, whatever, call him as soon as possible, and he would go down personally and investigate, which is, it's over 100 miles away, so he'd have to make a drive. Um, so fast forward a couple months. It's March now of 1980, March 13th, in Ventura, which is even further south. <clears throat> Lyman Smith was a prominent lawyer and was going to become a judge. He was married to Charlene Smith. Three days later, on March 16th, Lyman's 12-year-old son came home from a previous marriage, um, his, his own mom, biological. She lived in the same subdivision but three blocks over. So he rode his bike to the house, came over to check on his dad, um... As Gary, the son, walked up to the house, he saw three days' worth of mail and newspapers. He went to use oh. a, yeah, he went to use a key to enter the door, but it was already cracked open. Um, as he entered, he saw stuff on the floor that was unusual because Charlene was a neat freak. And he went to their bedroom, and he thought that they were sleeping in because he saw two people in bed. He decided to go into the parents' room, and it was already 10.30, so they, he saw sheets pulled over, you know, the um, people sleeping in the bed. <sighs> what do you think he saw? Dead. He saw a bloody mess. Probably shot in the head. Almost correct, but see, the last time, the East Area Rapist made too much noise with the gunshots. This time... He did something more horrific. Nope. That would have been easy. Um, that would have been easy? That would have been easy. As, as he pulled the sheets over the dad's head, he was horrified to see his father's head completely bashed in with brain matter everywhere. Oh! Yeah. Did he hammer them? Did he what? 
the hammer? No, what, well, I'll tell you what he used right now, though. Um, he was lying on his stomach, the father. Gary ran out of the room, obviously, called the police department. They came down. Lyman's body was found on his stomach, severely beaten with blood spatter and brain matter all over the bed. The intruder had beaten him uh, with a sheet over his head to limit the blood splatter going everywhere else. Um, Charlene was beaten in the head with him, but she was lying on her back with a t-shirt on naked from the waist down, and she had her head bashed in as well. Uh, they were both tied up, and there were signs that she had been raped and sexually assaulted prior. Um, so he raped her while Lyman was still alive. Um, what the murder weapon was, was actually a two foot long, um, firewood log piece from the, um, from outside. Yeah. Yep. He, he He beat him till the wood broke actually. Yeah. Uh, this guy, I told. You really need some horrific crap to get turned on, huh? Yeah, I mean this is, and this is the other thing too. There was sperm found in two other places of the house, so he got off again, staying there with the dead bodies, and I guess witnessing his masterpiece, basically. Wow, that's disgusting. Yep. So. The police had figured because of the newspapers and whatnot and the groceries, they'd been dead for three days. And um, here's here's what made things muddy about the case. Um, A former associate that lost money with Lyman in the past was, I guess, a suspect because he had lost a great deal of money with one of Lyman's business uh, ventures that didn't work. And they thought it was revenge. And then the other one was she had a a lover on the side and they felt that he was obsessed and he was the killer so this case wasn't lumped in with the East Area Rapist or the original Night Stalker series till later so in the first yeah the first year of this case they're 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 wasting their time on two people that aren't even real suspects dang yep so he got away with Hunter well in a sense yeah, and he was he was in a he was just in a right place at the right time. He did his thing, and it's it's weird. It's it's frustrating at that time. So, you fast forward now to August nineteenth, nineteen eighty, in Dana Point, which is Southern California, just you know down the mm-hmm. coast. And yep. um, it's uh, August nineteenth of nineteen eighty, and uh, Keith and Patty Harrington were married just three months prior. They had a nice. Uh, yeah, they had a nice house in a quiet neighborhood. Um, Keith's father stopped by in the evening to have dinner with the newlyweds. Upon entering the front door, and the same thing happened. The door was ajar. Um, Keith, Keith's father saw several Alpha Beta bags of groceries on the kitchen table. As he searched the house, he saw a huge amount of blood on the headboard and the white sheets that had covered were covered in blood as he lifted the sheet he saw his his naked daughter-in-law who had been raped on her stomach tied up and her head bashed in and his son the same way yep so that's his new thing now bashing people's heads huh? yep that's the new thing 
He wants to make sure they're dead. Yeah. He wants to finish the job and, and as quiet as possible, if that's possible. But they were... I mean, is that really possible? I mean... I mean, if they're gagged, they can't scream. But, I mean, still, I mean, that's... Ugh. So, um... Yeah, I mean, the families now that he's destroying, it's just ridiculous, you know? Um, so the police came out to find the similar characteristics as Lyman Smith's case, only <clears throat> no murder weapon on the scene. Um, they would find... Uh, they would find a bloody biker glove, though, three blocks away. That was weird because this was a gated community. So they only had three ways in, which was a, um, a key card gate and a security guard uh, entrance way. And the only way else you can get into that community was if you were to climb the hills or a tree and jump over the fence. So that's what they thought he did. Wow. And um, police would deduce that the murder weapon was a sprinkler head that had been removed from the side of the house because they had just got new sprinklers put in. Dang. Yeah. They found, they actually found pieces of um, brass from the sprinkler in, in her, in her head. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, man, this guy, this guy. This guy. <laughs> I can't even get the word out. I know you're stuck on this guy. <laughs> Man! Like, this dude needs to get his head blown Yeah, see, now you know Man. why so many people are pissed at this dude? Now I see why you hate him. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the next offense took place in Irvine in Southern California. So, out your way. Irvine? Irvine. So he's, he's going towards the south now yeah he's in the south right now um right. so this is february 6th of 1981 um this one's sad in in a, in a bunch of ways but I'll, I'll explain what the fallout from this later um 28 year old manuela with with hun was from germany and she was home alone because her husband had been in the hospital of um due to a viral infection Earlier in the evening, she visited him and said, I love you and I'll see you tomorrow. You know, she dropped off some flowers, hung out with him and told her, you know, she'll be back again because he, he had to stay in the hospital, I guess, to get his system flushed for like another day or two. Um, not much was described on this murder other than the fact that she had been beaten and stabbed with a screwdriver um, and she was left rolled up in a sleeping bag. The screwdriver had helped bash her head in somehow and also was used to pry in the back patio door. Um, the answering machine tapes were stolen, though. So that means he had been leaving some hang-up calls on her phone. Um, the police felt that this was done by someone close to her and was a crime of passion. And the case went cold. For the, But the, the exception to that was the only suspect the police would actually hone in on for years was the poor husband who was in the hospital. Wow. They would hound him till 2001. What? Nearly 20 years. Yes. <laughs> yes. How the hell did 
Their brilliant theories were either he snuck out because there was no security cards and no no one that had checked up on him during the night, apparently, and they also felt that maybe he hired somebody. What an idiot. Yep. And this, and this was sad in many ways because this took a toll on him mentally and physically. Even when he moved on and got married years later, um, he died of natural causes in 2008. And he was still pretty. He was still pretty young. He was in his early fifties, and um, you know his brother said that he died of a broken heart and just frustration. That'll do it. Yep. So that was tough. Um, so in June, July twenty seventh, nineteen eighty one, back up in Goleta again, um, <clears throat> an intruder came. Uh, when an intruder came in and unlocked a glass door, as the intruder entered, he found Sherry Domingo and her boyfriend, Gary Sanchez, at a home that was set to be sold by the realtors and was going to have another visit in the morning. Um, the house was going to be shown off. Um, so Sherry Sherry was, uh, I guess, when the, when the uh, person, the realtor, came the next day, she came to check on the house. She opened the door. The door again was left ajar. She walked in, went to the bedroom, and there she found uh, Sherry was hogtied with knots on her ankles and um, feet on her, uh, you know, her stomach, and she had um, been bludgeoned to death again. <clears throat> yeah, and her boyfriend Gregory Sanchez, though police would find this a little weird but he was found in the closet with a gunshot wound to the cheek and his head was bashed in what would appear to be 24 strikes or blows to the head oh like punches no like um hit with something like with a weapon yeah so yeah so here's what the cops did when they did their investigation they realized that the cheek shot was a side shot like it was like a it's like almost he was shot through the mouth and it went out the cheek so it wasn't a fatal shot so he was alive while he was tied up so they figured that he charged the attacker too with with his hands behind his back trying to knock the gun out or something he was shot and then out of frustration the intruder just bashed his head in while he was still alive yeah that's oh man oh this guy's insane already Yep. And um like he was insane all along, but now it's just like completely out of hand. Yeah, he's off the rails, right? So um what happened was after this, you know, latest thing happened, Santa Barbara police talked about the other Golita attacks and then they made a phone call down to Irvine and you know, they put the I guess to be on the lookout and there was a couple of the Irvine cops that said hey you know we have a case like that down here and so then they realized it was the same guy same MO and they started putting them together now they didn't put the other one together the Winhoon one but they put those other ones and the Dana Point one together so now there's four cases and they're starting to finally label him the original Night Stalker wow and um However, at the same time, Richard Ramirez, which was episode number one, 
began to torment the Southern California area with the brutal murders, and the Los Angeles Times called him the Night Stalker. So the other so it eight. It was around the same era, right? It was a, almost the same time period. Wow. So up there, Santa Barbara was like, well, this guy's the original Night Stalker, and boom, there's the name. Wow. Yep. So, um. Wow. So another tragic thing to this. Um, Domingo case is the daughter Debbie Domingo Um, in this case Sherry's daughter Debbie was 17 at the time being a typical teenager 17 and wanting to hang out be with her boyfriend this and that her and her mom fought all the time and it came down to a bathing suit she wanted to wear to the beach where Debbie just decided I'm out you know she told her mom I'm going to my friend's house I'm tired of you I don't want you in my life ever again. That's the last thing she told her mom. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Where are we going with this topic? I'm saying that the fact that she had to live with telling her mom she hates her and never wants to see her again, her mom was murdered by the uh, Golden State Killer. That's the last time she talked to him. I wonder, dude, is she still alive? Oh, yeah. She's uh, been on, on the recent documentary, yeah. I wonder how she felt with that guilt all these all these years. She's had to go to counseling several times, and she's had to deal with the fact that that was the last thing she said. But she's had a lot of people tell her, you know, it's not your fault. You know, normal cases, you know, this wouldn't have happened. So she's had to deal with this her entire life. It's, it's more fallout from this jerk. I would too. I mean, how the heck do you live with yourself after saying those things and then you never get to see her again? Absolutely. I mean, it's... It's like your wish came true and it's like that feeling that what you wanted at that moment actually happened in a very horrific way and now she's gone? Yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be a lot. I I don't know if I could live that way. Yeah, I couldn't live that out too. That's like me telling my mom I wish I'd never see her again next thing you know. I come home and she's dead. I would feel like I did that. And I, I, yeah. Yeah, you guys are on point. I mean, that's, how do you live with yourself after that? I mean, it's terrible. So, um, in 1986, five years after the series of killings, there was a phone call placed to a rape victim, number 24, saying, it's me again. I miss you sucking on me, and I want to F you again. Then he hung up. Yeah. Yeah. He's going backwards and tormenting other people. So years after his this rape took place, he called the same person? Yeah. Yeah. He... Wow. What, is he keeping a log? What the hell? I'm pretty sure he does have a log somewhere. Um. So the... <laughs> The police were baffled, and the community as well, as some speculated the offender had died off in prison already. But with that phone call, the police were like, no, this guy's alive and well. He's hiding out somewhere. But with them investigating that phone call and reopening up the East Area Rapist cases up north, back in your hometown or home area of Irvine, May 4th, 1986, in Irvine, California, Janelle Cruz was 18 was no sorry 17 year old 
was at home with her friend from school. The pair would be watching TV. Her male friend heard noises outside. He checked, but nothing was there. Later in the evening, he left, though, around 12 o'clock. The problem with this is Janelle's mom and dad were in Mexico on vacation. Their house was on the market as well, and a realtor had an appointment to show off the house the next day, same as the Sanchez. But difference is, a realtor, the man came the next day. She knocked on the door, so she had the keys. When no one answered, she let herself in. As the realtor came into the room, she found Janelle on her side, tied up in a blanket, and she had been bludgeoned with a wrench so severely they could not recognize her face. Police came and found the same M.O.s as the other houses, plus the fact that she had been raped and tied up the same way. The back door sliding door was open. This case was attributed to the original Night Stalker right away. So, really? Yeah, that one was, they knew right away that was a Night Stalker. Wow, at least they're getting a little smarter. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, here's our here's some of our heroes though. Shelby and Crompton were still on the case, along with Carolyn Daly. And some time in 1991, rape victim number seven got a call saying, "You know who this is, and I'm coming to rape you." And again, and he hung up and laughed. After this. Um, you know, after this, it's all about the players that would eventually take down this piece of trash. So, 91 was the last time they heard from this guy. Okay, so he went from, from 86 all the way to 91. So, five years has passed. Yeah, five years. His last offense was calling the the one of the rapes from way back in 76, number seven. Just a toy with her. And the police found out later that Joseph James D'Angelo would have gone to the Denny's where she worked because he lived in the area, realized it was a rape victim he had raped before, and decided to just pester her one more time. Oh, man. Yep. Just leave her alone. At this point, you already done enough. That's 15 years later after the rape. She could have gone so much like uphill in overcoming the situation and then she's going to go through this all over yep basically nightmare yep so we've heard guys this entire time and I've been speaking so much about all the crap that this dude has done and he seemed to just get away at all times right well here the the tide will finally change so if you want the good news Finally. finally here it starts to go um, Let's go. <laughs> so Paul Holes is my hero. This this dude is like you know, dude. Wait, wait, wait. Paul yeah, yeah, Paul Holes. He's he's oh. like right now he's like fifty three, but he looks like thirty six. Like the dude's like in great shape. He's retired now, but um, at the time he was a forensic specialist at the Contra Costa County Police Department, which is basically Sacramento Police Department. Um. One day in 1994, he was doing a little cleaning up in the file cabinets, and he saw this room that no one ever went into. And um, he went in there, and he saw these two big file cabinets that were marked ear. He's like, ear? What the heck is ear? And so he went to his supervisor and said, what's ear? And he says, oh, those are a series of rapes. 
and you know break-ins that were never solved it was a huge case but it's just it's super cold and nobody cares about it so he's like can i take a crack at that and his supervisor like, yeah you have any downtime sure go for it so he started looking through it and he was like wow this guy was prolific you know he same kind of stuff that we're looking at it for the first time he was freaking out like how did this guy get away you know he wanted to try to use the dna that he was possessing and of from the files and also his new tricks by science to try to maybe track this guy down by using dna so he tried using the rape kits that they had to enter the, into the system, whatever system they had, try to find if it, they've had someone that's arrested. And he was just trying to match it, you know. But every time you use a sample, you, you can't use it again. So he was using it very carefully, but he was running out of sperm samples to try to match it to this guy. So um, he began to, vi to visit and interview old victims. And there was no cold case unit back then, so he was basically doing the job of a detective and a forensics uh, scientist. Um, but then he ran into Larry Crompton, who, had, who was retired, and he interviewed him, and the two began to work together. And even though Crompton was retired, he, he began to use his contacts to call the police departments and put them into control or into the same room as Paul Holes, and they started to all brainstorm together. So, Larry Crompton had been insisting that this was the same guy as the original Night Stalker. It has to be. So, through his connections, he got Paul Holes one of the rape kits from one of the murders down in Irvine. And what happened in 2001? They were able to, to make a, uh, you know, a press conference and tell everybody the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker are the same man. So, <laughs> yeah, so this merger, though, made things even more confusing because you know what his new nickname was? Can you guess? They merged the two together. The Golden State Killer. No, that came after. Oh. Uh, the East Area Night Stopping. <laughs> that would have been better than what they picked. They, uh. Let me get yeah, they decided to um, to say, hey, you know what? The, we'll run with this in the newspaper. We'll call him Eron's. What? <laughs> I imagine a character who can pull off his ears and put him back on. Yeah, yeah. Eron's. That's all this. <laughs> and eat Eron's. Eron's. So, okay. yeah, so... Um, that didn't really exa exactly excite the media. And you remember in 2001, there was a big event that kind of stole all the headlines, 9-11. So yep. you, this was really wiped underneath the carpet as quickly as it came out. Like it was just swept under the carpet, sorry. <clears throat> um, but something good did come from this too. Uh, Bruce Harrington, the brother of Keith Harrington, whose brother was brutally murdered in Dana Point, was a lawmaker and he passed the the 2002 proposition 69 which gives police and authorities uh force uh the force to take dna from any any person that they arrest on a felony so this was a way of him thinking okay well maybe my brother's killers in 
gel and we can get a hold of this bastard by taking his DNA forcibly. So so that passed. So that was a good thing that came out of this. Um, then also, uh, when this passed, also it gave holes more options to search countrywide, not just locally, to look for the offender. Now another another key. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she had she wrote a book on it called "I'll Be Gone in the Dark." Was Michelle McNamara in 2006? She's I don't know if you guys know the comedian Patton Oswalt. Well, he no, it's a guy, Patton Oswalt. Oh, don't, don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you don't know him now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he's actually done a lot of voices for Disney too. Um, I'll have to send you the links. I don't have them off the top of my head, but he's done a lot of voices for Disney and other characters, and he's a funny guy. But okay. she was married to him at the time, Michelle McNamara. Oh. And you think I'm obsessed with crime or Gabby's obsessed with crime? This chick lived it. She wrote it. She started a blog. She had many connections. She wrote books. She was all about true crime. And um, one one day in 2008, she came across Eron's, and she wanted to know what, what it was. And she dove into it, and just like us and others, they were amazed about this guy. And she made it her goal to catch him. So she started writing about him, getting um, internet sleuths involved, people with their theories, and just blogging and blogging and blogging about it. She reached out to Paul Holes, and Paul Holes and her started to work on the case together. And so they were giving each other, you know, they were sharing case files and all this stuff, right? They, they started to do this whole thing. And then in 2013, she says, this is ridiculous. He needs a better name. We need to put his name out there because... No one's going for Eron's. It's just, it sounds stupid. So she came yeah. up with Golden State Killer and it took hold, off. Hold that, hold that thought. Hold, on, hold that. Uh, I have a few things to ask. So, so 91 was the last time he made that phone call, correct? Yes. So from, for, from 91 to 2001, there had been nothing mentioned, no news. He hadn't, he basically been under the saddle for 10 years. Until 2001, Paul Hope, well, you know, found out a little bit about him. Yes. It's like he fell off the face of the earth. Yeah. So seven years after that, they make that announcement. 2008, they change his name up and say, hey, he's no longer Iran. He's the Golden State Killer. Yeah, 2013, actually. Oh. No, 2008. Um, yeah, Michelle McNamara started working the case. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, so that's... from 1991 <clears throat> to 2011, he's been under the saddle. Yeah. yeah, hasn't popped up, hasn't made a phone call, nothing. Wow. Yep. Well, we'll get to that, and it's gonna be, it's gonna blow your mind. It's good. <laughs> so, so in two thousand. Speechless this episode. <laughs> What's that? I'm saying I'm very speechless this episode. Yeah, I know. I mean, usually you're more outspoken, but it's pretty crazy information, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so attracting much needed heat to the case by naming him Golden State Killer, it came off the tongue a lot easier, and it was publicized in the Los Angeles Times, New York Times places around the world even in England they were 
people were starting to get fascinated by this guy and why he was never caught. You know, because <clears throat> back then you had the Zodiac, I-5 Killer, all kinds of things going on around the same time. So he was overshadowed. So he, he just kept getting the luck of the draw all the time. Um, so he began to get profiled on podcasts is where I heard it from. I heard it on one of the podcasts. And, um, you know, it was coined as an unsolved mystery, you know, like an unsolved case in California, one of California's most brutal people. Um, she wrote a book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and as she was writing it, she was almost finished. She was about 90% finished. She had been so obsessed with trying to solve this case, having a six-year-old and, you know, doing things like that, and being a mom or whatever, she had been starting to take Ritalin to stay awake and then sleeping pills to slow herself down. She at some points started to get uh, only two to three hours of sleep a night. And um, it carried on for some time until uh, a point in 2016 where she died in her sleep of a heart attack. Oh, man. Yeah, she was only, she was only in her mid to, late, mid to early 40s. Oh. Yeah. So she didn't finish the book? She didn't finish the book, but however, her husband, Patton Oswald, worked with Paul Holes uh, and two other of her writers and Jensen, I uh, forget his name, something Jensen, they were crime writers and they helped finish her book. Wow. And it came out a bestseller uh, in 2017 and uh, people, even more people got attracted to the case because of that book. Wow. Well, at least he left left a stamp on her before she passed. Yeah, she did. She did. And it, it, so she worked really hard on it, but uh, the thing was and Paul Holes and Richard Shelby along with Larry Crompton and Carolyn Daly would work together on the case even though all of them, including Paul Holes was going to retire. So all of them had were retired already but except Paul Holes but he was on his way out in 2017. Um they would be at the district Sacramento district attorney's office though one day for a press conference where they would announce were, would announce a new reward to capture of, of the capture or information leading to the capture at the very same time Paul Holes was working with a genealogy lab which now is very prominent and out there they do a lot of work for crimes um, but at the time this was the first time like Paul Holes got the idea of hey you know let's we only have so much of this DNA left. Let's enter it into a 23andMe type website or an Ancestry.com. And they didn't get much results with those two until they tried GEDmatch, which is another one. Um, so what happened was um, they, they put it into the website, and lo and behold, two days later, Paul Holes gets a call. And it says, we got a hit. And basically, yeah, basically what they did was they took his DNA that they got from the hit and they started building the tree, the family tree backwards. It was a distant relative from like the early 1900s. And so now they got to build a tree and match up who was in the area and whatnot all the way up. So. Wow. Yeah, so so once That's smart. Yeah, that guy was a genius, dude. A genius. <clears throat> um so what happened was this was very interesting that the 
they had built the tree it was taking them almost six months to a year and finally they got down to three possibles Paul Holes checked out the other two and they just weren't a match nothing fit nothing came up so as they were they dismissed the last two um, they started going into the you know his past of Joseph James D'Angelo and they found out that he was a he was engaged to this woman named Bonnie and then Paul Holes was like wait a minute I read in those articles that he was saying the name's Bonnie and so that clicked and then when he saw the Navy ties and the fact that he lived in Citrus Heights in the areas where there was a few rapes and it was in that area the same time um he started to be like this guy looks good but he'd been disappointed year after year because he'd go out and find maybe a a person or interview someone from the past and think that the guy was good for it just to be turned down after the dna didn't match so so um you know he's he went to go to to actually to joseph james d'angelo's house as he pulled up in front of the house you know he decided he's like you know what he he did like one of those he had like one of those come to jesus moments like where if i go and answer you know go to his door and say hey i need a, a sample of your dna you know he could be, give it to him but then you know maybe he kills himself because he knows the cops are on to him or he just you know he has a way to get out of town so he's like you know what i'm not gonna even though this is my last day on the force i'm retiring he's like i'm I don't want to risk it. So he left it up to DNA and he left it up to the FBI who now got involved. And uh, the FBI decided to do things slow too. The next few weeks, the FBI was around his house in unmarked cars viewing his comings and goings. What do you think they observed him doing? At 72 years old, by the way. Uh, exercise. Okay. At 72? Mm-hmm. I give up. Same thing. <laughs> Same thing. Well, he actually... Oh. <gasps> he, he should be mowing the lawn. Does he have a cane? <laughs> actually, no. And here's the thing. <clears throat> you guys are right. He was not only mowing his lawn, he was cutting it with scissors when it was like, you know how, like, the edging... If it's oh, yeah, yeah. if it's not the perfect height, he's cutting it with scissors. Wow. He's also yelling at neighbors, and he yells at himself. Um, he has a huge boat which he latches and unlatches from his truck. He goes fishing all the time. He has a motorcycle. He has a treadmill which he exercises every evening, and he also rides his bike around the neighborhood. Dang, the FBI saw all that. The FBI saw all that. They even, they even observed him uh, riding his motorcycle on the 99 freeway at 105 miles per hour. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. How old again? Seventy-two. Seventy-two. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, when they started to, you know, after, you know, well, first off, let me get to what happened. So he was this entire time. He was a mechanic for a foods company, a, a, tr- a trucking company that delivered foods to sort of like a Cisco to different grocery stores. And he was a mechanic. He, the last 20 years, he'd worked for them. And so he was quiet most of the time. And he had two daughters. Uh, his wife had, had left, you know, had still been married to him, but had left out of state as a lawyer. 
the two daughters left, but then one came back in um, uh, the, the late 90s. To, oh, no, early to, uh, I'm sorry, early 2000s to live with him and had been living with oh. him since. Um, wow. The cops, though, did find out that he had a, one of his daughters was born in 1981. And then, remember, it stopped for five years. His second daughter was born in '86, just prior or just uh, just after that last uh, killing of uh, Cruz. So the kids probably got him to stop. And then the fact that he knew that DNA was on the rise. How does such a sick bastard have children of his own? Yeah, he, he and then daughters. It's like. Don't they remind you of the disgusting things you did? <laughs> yeah, and here's the thing, though. I mean, every point you just said, you would think a normal human being would be like, yeah, that's that's dirty, that's disgusting. How could he have daughters? He has a granddaughter. And from what, what? the... Yeah, from what the neighbors said, the the granddaughter was living with the, the daughter with him up until he was arrested. And everyone said he was the nicest grandpa. Now, he was mean to the neighbors, meaning... One time, the uh, the dogs were barking. He called and left a voicemail saying, I'm going to kill that dog or kill you if you don't shut it up. And the father confronted Mr. D'Angelo, which D'Angelo backed down because he was a bigger and younger guy. Well, two weeks later, that German shepherd that had been barking got sick and then would subsequently die a week later. Oh, what a coincidence. But they had no evidence that it was D'Angelo. But judging by what D'Angelo has done this entire series, it's pretty much him. Of course. Um, he scared the kids in the neighborhood. Uh, they had a, There was a tree house that overlooked his house on the hill above in the backyard of someone's uh, you know, family's home. And they had a sleepover one night. And D'Angelo actually went up there when the kids were making noise like you know they do they're in their, they're in their freaking you know it's the weekend they're having a good sleepover leave them alone like it's like sandlot they're up there having a good night you know yeah he flashes a light on them tells them to shut the f up or he'll shut them up like they're dogs okay. <laughs> yeah 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 this, <laughs> yeah this time he's in his late 60s at that time oh okay but he's but everybody- yeah, but there's yeah, there's people his family describes him as being Uncle Joe, which is a nice guy that likes to go fishing, hunting with his gun, and also he's great with kids. When they showed the documentary of Michelle McNamara, they had all these old pictures of Joe and his nephews loved him. He ha- he always has kids around him, and like you said, Gabby, how in the world can you hold a child or have a 13, 14-year-old teenager around you or on your lap like he did? Knowing that you raped the same girls their age. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, how do you, how does it not cross your mind? Like, dang, how would I feel if somebody did that to my kid? Absolutely. That's the part that I just don't understand. Twisted and psycho. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he can live a totally normal life and act like nothing happened. Yeah, and he's in his golden years, retired, in great shape. You know what I mean? While he's destroyed so many people, either mentally or physically, or he murdered them. 
So, so well, let me ask you a question. You mentioned great shape. This is 2018, right? And he's 72 years old. Was he still in great shape? Yes. This this is the same guy that was riding his bike through the neighborhood, riding his motorcycle at 105 miles per hour, uh, on the treadmill, uh, doing all his own lawn care and yard care, all by himself. At 72. At 72. So what happened? How did they get him? So on that trip that he rode his motorcycle at 105 miles per hour, they followed him into the Hobby Lobby store. He purchased some coffee, and as he drank it before he got back on his motorcycle, he discarded the cup. When they picked up the wow. cup, yep, the FBI agent got the cup. They took it to uh, the lab, and lo and behold, it was a complete and other 100% match. So, Yay. yeah, so all of a sudden, one day, on April 24th, uh, 2018, an agent in plain clothes came and knocked on the door. And if you've seen D'Angelo's, I'll post a picture. It's like at the end of the street, it's like a T version of the street. So the agent came up and said, I'm kind of lost. I'm new to the area. I'm looking for a house. And he knew of a street two blocks over. So D'Angelo came to the door and wasn't too happy about it. It was kind of rude. But the guy insisted, I need, can you just point me in the right direction? So as D'Angelo came out of the house, here comes the SWAT team. And they pull up with AKs pointed at him and everything because they didn't know if he was packing or what. And um, they take they take him into custody. And uh, here's the best part. If you guys get this, dude, <laughs> what is the one and only thing he tells the lead FBI agent when the FBI agent asks him, you know, just a question, but he gives him this answer? What, what do you think he said? About time. That would have made sense. <laughs> it's something that doesn't make sense. Did he say I'm innocent? No. Again, that would make sense. <laughs> Get my uh, I left my coffee on. <laughs> close. Very close. Very close. You guys give up? Yeah. Okay, so he t- so the, the, the he says, Do you have anything to say for yourself? And he says, I have a pot roast in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> Which the which the agent just smiled and said, "We'll take care of that for you." Wow. So. Um, wow. <laughs> so what happens is, after he's arrested, he's in custody. He comes to his first preliminary hearing, and you know, people they did a big press conference. Paul Holes was heralded as a hero, and the all the other people. They even mentioned McNamara, saying that she would have loved to have been there. You know, she died way too young, and this was a crowning achievement by her as well. And all these tributes were made, and all the victims, this is the best part. From that moment on, all the victims over the years got together via the internet and in the area, and now all meet once or twice a year at one of the, uh, I think it was the 16-year-old that was raped with a piano. She has a nice home now. She invites them all there to all commit commiserate or just get things off their chest and they've all worked with each other carolyn daly's there they've been just a a great great strength to each other that's pretty cool man that's pretty cool now they all i mean they all share something which is obviously a negative but at least they can kind of like get together and try to like talk it about 
and try to get some support, get some support, you know, and just hash things out, you know. Absolutely. It's always good to let out your feelings. Absolutely. And, they, um, Right, and they were able to form a, a good, um, what's it called, a, um, a little a bond. Yeah, basically they became sisters, and when the trial came, they all showed up together with signs saying, you were in control, now we're in control. And he showed up, if you've seen it, his first public appearance, he was in a wheelchair, and he looked like he was, like, going to die. And everyone... And I mean, everyone said it was so BS. He was putting on an act to try to get people to feel sorry for him. Yeah, he was. It was BS. Yes. Because mm-hmm. it two years ago, he's freaking seventy-two on a motorcycle going that fast. Like, how do you all of a sudden you're all frail and useless? Like, you can't walk now. Yep. And and here's the thing too, with with what happened there, people called BS. And the problem was this was going to be a case that because he struck all over California, he had seven or eight jurisdictions that wanted to prosecute him. So they were saying, dude, this case can go five years or more and he might not make it. And it's going to cost the state upwards over a hundred million dollars. So what happened here is my conspiracy theory um, thinking went off because he basically had one or two more preliminary hearings about lawyers and what who's going to be called as witnesses and whatnot. And a lot of these women would have to redo their testimony. And it would, yeah. kind of would be painful. Here's my conspiracy therapy. I want to, know, want to know if you guys are on board with this. But I think what happened was his, his daughter and granddaughter moved away. I think what happened okay. was the state gave them a deal, gave him a deal... Because the death penalty by Newsom was already taken off the table, so you had nothing to scare him with. And me and Matt had talked about it before, and we're like, dude, there's no way he's going to say anything or comp to any of this stuff because he doesn't have to. There's no death penalty. So yeah. I'm thinking the state gave him or his estate a good-sized amount of money, and they probably have hooked him up with a penthouse of, of – of gel cells, including any amenity and any kind of food he wants for the rest of his life. Because all of a sudden, just a couple months ago, literally a couple months ago, he had a, they had a press conference in a big stage where he came on, they rolled him up and they read every charge. And he pleaded in his same voice like that, instead of his regular deep voice, (laughs) he acted like a, yeah, he did that girlish voice. Remember the Visalia guy did? Yeah, he he pled guilty to everything. And he took he took yeah, he took claim to the Visalia stuff and the ransacker stuff before that. So here's Visalia, the small city who had all those unsolved cases, the murders and and the attempted murder on the police officer, and they were able to finally close their cases and say, "We told you so." It happened. It was him. We knew it. And they were proven right. Crompton was proven right. And it seemed like it was finally all fell into line. Wow. And I think last thing I'll say on it is the self-preservation on this guy. He doesn't want to die. 
And I think that's what, another reason why he worked out the deal. And I think he got off sexually one more time. I hate to say it at 74 years old with them reading in detail each offense, either by rape victim, like I did this entire time, or by murder. And I think he got off on that. You think so? Yeah. I, I think he was I think he was um he was pitching a four inch woody during the whole thing. Inky Winky was excited. There you go too. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> His favorite rapper's too short? What? Hey. <laughs> okay, wait. What about his family, though? Like, so they're not in contact with him or anything? His wife? Well, yeah. Here's the thing, too, which is very interesting. Good question. Sharon Huddle magically, and get this, magically, was still with him until he pled guilty. Then she officially filed for divorce. And she's a lawyer. What? Yeah, she's a lawyer, meaning the word on the street is, and on the internet, is that she knew in some way of what he was doing, and to protect herself from having to testify against her husband or incriminate her as to knowing some stuff and looking the other way, she decided to stay married because there's a rule and a law in the government where you can't, where spouses don't have to testify against their significant other. Wow. Yep. She's she's guilty, and the funny thing though is she played that card, and people caught on, and they started trolling her, and they started trolling her practice, and they started writing bad reviews. They started just emailing her, picketing in front of her law office to where she had to quit, and she's oh wow yeah she's moved somewhere where nobody knows where she's at right now. It's impossible. There is no way a woman can be that oblivious. And so not know what her couple interviews but they weren't done on television they were only written about but the daughters have very little to say about it if anything and they um, Paul Holes the detective and forensic scientist he felt that uh, I guess he had some sort of moral come back to Jesus type thing when they were born where he would just stop where he just couldn't do it anymore and he, he feels that that helped stop him from killing more but they, he doesn't feel that the daughters know too much about it um, because even when the daughter came back 
in uh, you know in the mid 2000s I think it was or early 2000s and to live with him and with her grand with his grandchild another girl um, she didn't mention anything out of the blue she was caught off guard but it seems to me that the wife knew Huddle Sharon Huddle knew for sure because again when we talked about it earlier I think it was in part two they were they weren't sleeping in the same room sometimes and there was a sliding glass door in the bedroom that he lived that he slept in when he wasn't sleeping with her. So I think that he got away with it for a while, but then she found out and put two and two together. I mean, you can't be that stupid with all that stuff going on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But, I mean, (laughs) any other thoughts on this case? I mean... (laughs) I'm mad. (laughs) Right? This man... He's up there, I believe, in San Quentin, but I believe he's got probably the best clubhouse that they can provide because he, this man, because he pleaded guilty to everything, solved so many cases, whether they had DNA on him or not, and he saved the state over $100 million. I think Newsom gave him a, a, a penthouse. Wow. Yeah. So it pays to be a criminal, I guess. At, I guess so, yeah. I mean, if you've Nobody got... Nobody cares about you. Nobody cares. It's all about the damn money. They don't care about people's closure. They don't care about what he deserves. They just... They finally shut the damn case. They got to hear what they wanted to hear. Yeah. And they saved money on him. So now they're going to reward him? Yep. Let us reward you for all the crap you did, the people you raped, tormented, and killed, the families you may suffer by extension of all that and we're going to reward you for finally admitting to it you get points and I'm going to give you a happy face sticker for the rest of your life for admitting to all the horrible things that you did and we're going to protect you too yep yeah he's you know he's in protective custody like he like he's oh got yeah. his own wing dude wow and here's another sad thing about it as we get into uh, as I start to wrap up here there's there's um, there was over 50 rapes. They think there was a lot more, but some weren't reported. And so you take all that into consideration. Of all the reported rapes, of the ones that were couples, or they were boyfriend and girlfriend or married, how many do you think stayed together after all that? Three. Lower. One. You're right. One couple stayed married and true to each other through the whole process, and they survived together, they went to therapy together, and they're still flourishing to this day. So he ruined several marriages. And several relationships. Wow. Yeah, even the, even the dude that was strong and had the plan with his, with his wife, they broke up too. Wow. Yep. You know, I can't imagine what they went through, and I don't know, and I'm no way to judge. I've never experienced that. Um, But I I think, like, at at the end of the day, like, at that point already, people splitting up and stuff, like, that's your personal responsibility now. Yeah. Because this man did what he did, and he's a sicko, and, and he's hateful, but... 
up to you how much love and support you're going to show each other to make it through something so bad. Yes. So I just feel like, like if it was for, like if it had happened to me, my train of thought would be like, yeah, it's something difficult because clearly that woman's going to have a hard time even having sex with her own husband mm-hmm. because of what she's been through. It's going to take a long time, you know? Yep. But you don't want to give that disgusting psycho the power over you. He did what he did, but you can't let him control the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's... And to me, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I feel like when people... I mean, everybody's different, but when people give in to those emotions to the extent of it ruining how you live, how you think, your relationships and everything, like you have given that person the power to continue to control you. Yep, absolutely. And I think it's it's really sad. I mean, you hit on a lot of good points there. Um, the 16-year-old, what I want to bring up, that played the piano, that have all the sisters over where they get together every year, um, the thing with her is when she told her story of what happened to her parents, her parents told her that we will never speak of this again. So for years, up until almost they died, she didn't be part of the case when it was making headlines. She didn't um, go to therapy because her family was more along the lines of not dis- disappointed, but what's that called? Embarrassed. Yeah, it was more shame. Yeah, but the thing was, what she said, it wasn't It wasn't anything that happened to her her uh, parents, it would happen to her, and uh, they never gave her the, the support. You know, she said she loved her parents and everything, but when it came to this, she was never really able to uh, fully grasp it. So it wasn't until they passed away in the early 2000s that she was able to finally get some help. Dang. So I hope personally that all of this gets back to him in some way, not the actions of what he did because he always will have that in his memory but my my wish and hope is that he gets to see the fallout and the pain that he put these people through and hopefully that affects him in a negative way not a positive yeah I agree man I wish for the same thing but honestly I don't expect that to ever happen it's wishful thinking (laughs) he's twisted and heartless I know you would like to uh, have a little bit better capital punishment issued to him. I know that. <laughs> Absolutely. You already know, like, if I was the one in this state to decide what this punishment would be, it would That's be right. very bad. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you. she would be, like, with a judge's gavel as she's hammering it into the ground. She's like, she's like off with his tinky winky. Off with the winky. Off with the winky. I'm sorry. All these first of all I gotta say thank you for enlightening us, especially me, when this Golden State killer because when I first met you, you told me about him. And I didn't know what you were talking about. You were talking a foreign language. And then now that I see he got uh, 
convicted and pled guilty, and now you brought out the story and pretty much in every detail explained what you did, and you, you shed a, 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 bigger, a bigger light on how sickening his case is and why he's deserving death, but he won't get that, we won't get that satisfaction of that light. That's true. It's just going to be natural causes for him, most likely. Yeah. But um, that was a Golden State Killer, guys. And I do have one other surprise. Instead of doing the episode seven, um, I took a road trip along with Tony up there, and this is this is on him. He he's like, dude, I want to go see it. We went up to Joseph James D'Angelo's house. Uh, we talked to a few neighbors. I got some interviews, and uh, it's. It's realer than real, and you get an adrenaline because he was literally like, Tony. we were driving through the neighborhood of Rancho Cordova, and he goes, hey, look, there's some old farts right there. And he goes, interview them. I'm sure they were here. And, and so <laughs> we went, we made a U-turn. I got out, and I started talking to a couple of them, and it was, it was crazy because, yes, they had lived there, and they were just saying how incredibly scared everyone was and how it still affects the neighborhood. And some people, like when you bring it up, they get very negative and don't want to talk about it because it was a scary time in their life. And we actually went to the Sanchez house in um, Domingo and we saw the exact pathways that he took to go from those walkways and washways. It came right to the back of Domingo's house. So it's like, man. And there was another one, a rape victim that one of the neighbors saw us videoing and she said, oh, go over there. You can see where he entered so-and-so's house over there. I'm like, where he beat the, um, it was in Goleta, where he beat the, uh, the the wife, or she ran into the house, and she was left, you know, in the front, and the FBI agent came down. She's like, the FBI oh, agent, man. yeah, she's like, the FBI agent is in his 90s now. He just got moved out of that house a couple years ago, and he went to um, old folks' home. And I'm like, dang, dude, like, there's so much history up here. And it becomes wow. more, it, it becomes more real to you. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, dude, this is exactly where he was. This is where it happened. It was scary, and it was full of adrenaline for me the whole time. Man, that's pretty amazing. Wow. And, the, and, and it was another surprise you said. You talked to me yesterday and said that it's possible you might uh, have a, a phone interview with one of the, the officers. Yeah, one of the, um, the old uh, Visalia police officers or sheriffs. So I'm I look forward to that. Man. I'm First trying of to. All, I gotta say, I'm glad you jumped out of the car and walked up on those. Because <laughs> uh, had it been me, oh man, <laughs> <laughs> you would have got maced. No, I didn't. It was way too hot. It was like 95 degrees up there. Hey, no more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know I wanted to. I did want to go in a suit and a, and a fedora, that's for sure. Dude, we got to have to go take a look over there, man. Now you got me wanting to check it out. <laughs> it's very scary. And get this, though. Um, one last thing, too. They sold Joseph James D'Angelo's house just uh, six months ago. And wow. the house is itself with the yard should run about between five and seven hundred thousand. 
they can only get maybe 300000 from it. And the guy that lives there is a douchebag because we tried to interview and but then right away like tony was like no he's got like no trespassing he had four signs in the front yard and on his window and you know he's got people like us wanting to ask questions and talk to him and he doesn't want to have any of it hey you know what i don't blame the guy Yeah, well, I mean, I don't blame him that way, but if I'm him, I'm I'm painting the house or, you know, I'm doing something yep. different to it because it looks exactly the same. Even the rocks that Joseph James D'Angelo put in the front yard where he put, you know, he put these big, like, 200-pound stones, one on each side of the grass in the front yard where he's taking pictures of him, like, with his knee up, like, doing the Captain Morgan. And uh, those are still there. So, I mean, the house looks identical. So he's just asking for it, in my opinion, because when we, yep. Tony drove by, yep. and I, I took out the iPad, and I was going to take a picture, and he starts to flip me off. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So he must get a lot of that. I'm glad I was you, not me. <laughs> he's like, wait, there's a black man in the car? Mabel, get my gun. <laughs> you first ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh man well ladies and gentlemen that is the end of our Golden State Killer podcast I want to thank Todd for breaking it down one more time Todd you did a great job you enlightened me you enlightened Gabby you know, you, a lot of work I'm quite that. sure you enlightened a lot of fans out there about who Mr. D'Angelo is why he's so sick so i really appreciate that Todd. well thank you guys for participating too and and riding along with me on this one uh, it was a it was a lot of work but this is definitely a, a passion case of mine oh yeah oh yeah you did a good job man thanks so next week we're gonna have something new mm-hmm. so uh stay tuned and listen in for that so before we sign off i want to let you guys know where you can find us Listen to us on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Facebook, Instagram. Type in Grinding Through Crime Podcast, and you can, find, you can find all of our old material and catch up to what we've been doing these past few months. So, with that being said, we are signing off. This is your boy, Matty Matt, along with the Red. Todd Fox. And the other host of the show. Daddy, daddy. And we are out of here, though. You know. Hey.